Hey everyone, this is Jordan Van Trump, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of How I Built This Ag Business. Just wanted to let everyone know this podcast is sponsored by the company I started right out of college called AgSwag. I'm sure like many of the other disruptors on this podcast, I started this company searching for cooler stuff and better service. One of my first tasks when I got out of college was finding some cool hats for my dad's business, as my family and their friends always struggled to source quality swag throughout the years. I started this company only making a few hats and have been fortunate enough to meet some of the top business leaders in the ag industry along the way. I've worked with some of the biggest disruptors currently in the space, such as FBN, Benson Hill, Pivot Bio, Pattern Ag, Holganics, as well as many veterans such as Cargill, Nutrien, Dairy Farmers of America, Kent Corp, CGB, Helena, and the list goes on and on. Throughout this journey of providing swag to various companies in agriculture, I've had the opportunity to learn some of the best business lessons, hacks, marketing strategies, and many other things to take my company to scale and become more successful throughout the years. My intentions of this series is to bring on guests that I've had the opportunity to work with over the years to tell their story and hopefully help you build your business in the future. Hope you enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of How I Built This Ag Business. We're on here today with Brian Jorgensen, Cody Jorgensen, and Nick Jorgensen with Jorgensen Land and Cattle out of Ideal, South Dakota. The operation began back in 1909, and now they operate over 12,000 acres of non-irrigated and no-till crops, as well as manage over 1,000 head of cattle, and they have over 5,000 bulls. On top of all that, they're uh, selling bulls, leasing bulls, and they, own, and they have their own pheasant hunting lodge, and with that, I'd uh, like to welcome all three of you to the show. Thank you. Appreciate Thank it. You. Yeah, I guess, uh, I guess let's just get started with uh, Brian on how the farm began and i'm sure you were involved a little bit i think it was your grandpa that started the farm and um i guess yeah yeah when, when you guys took over and how it kind of grew from there and when uh you started to become involved so yeah um it's actually my grandmother who settled the claim here um the home in, during the homestead act in 1909 and uh <clears throat> she then married my my grandfather, Martin Sr., and he moved back from Myrtle, where he had a claim, Myrtle, South Dakota, in Jones County. And uh, he basically traded his claim for a Hartpar tractor, oil pole tractor, and when they got married and moved to this part of the world, he made a, a lot of his living breaking sod in this part of the world, which is kind of ironic because we're <laughs> we're 100% no-till farmers now for the last 30, 35 years. So it's rather ironic that he made his start breaking the sod here and they had uh eight kids um three of the boys uh two of them went off to world war ii one of them never returned and uh, the one that did got into partnership with my father martin jr and uh <clears throat> dad was at the time running the farm because uh, uh martin senior was getting up in years and so dad really ran the operation from the time he was 19 until he died as a 95 year old here a couple of years ago uh but uh so don and he were partners until 1977 at which time my brother greg got involved and that's cody's dad and greg is still in the operation although he is retiring and on his way out but it's just grown through diverse operations from that point forward my dad started they really kind of grew the operation growing turkeys back in the 30s and 40s uh, and in the 1950s, he started breeding cattle. And Cody can kind of give you the history of that. But uh, it's just really blossomed from there. But it, one of the things that we've always been taught through their lessons and hard, of hard knocks was always be diverse. You know, you got to have your you can't have all your chickens in one box. And that's really ringing true with what we do today. We we grow a lot of different crops. We have a lot of different things, a lot of different wheels in motion all the time and so it's because of that diversity that we can get through the harder times and we're going through some pretty tough times right now not only from a standpoint of you know not having enough moisture but it's a tough tough environment to be in right now with high interest rates and things are getting very very costly um, labor's hard to find so there's a lot of things but we're with what we're doing we're we're we're, we're staying on course and we're, we're doing pretty cool. So I think it's, it's really the lessons that they taught us that uh, the legacies they left behind that we really have remained 
successful throughout those years. Yeah, I um, I had the opportunity. Uh, you know, I appreciate you guys having me on your advisory board and everything, and I've seen all the diversification you guys have added to revenue channels and different streams. And yeah, I think that's awesome. And uh, I I really think that's you know a lot of farm families, especially uh, like you said, uh, with the history of homesteading and things, you know, have to try and look for those additional channels and, and additional profit centers like you guys have. And it's it's awesome bringing some of the younger kids in and getting their ideas and how you guys re- re- freshened up the, uh, the pheasant hunting lodge and you guys are doing some different things with the bull leasing and, and all that. I mean, Cody, you want to tell us a little about the, uh, the cattle operation and what, what's happening there? You bet. Yeah. So like Brian mentioned, um, grandpa Martin, he started breeding cattle, I would say really in the early fifties um, and really uh, kind of pioneered what we call, you know, performance testing cattle. Uh, which is pretty common in today's cattle world. Everybody that is in the seed stock business would understand and, and comprehend performance testing cattle. And grandpa, he, um, you know, they didn't have a lot of tools back in those days. And, and um, he had what they call a cow card, which is a handwritten, I got them sitting on my table over here. That's a handwritten pedigree um, of that, of that particular cow. And then on the backside of it, it's all her calves and what they weighed uh, over time. And so really in a nutshell, Grandpa Martin was one of the first people ever to start taking data um, from that cow's production and comparing it to its contemporary groups, um, which then allowed him to make genetic selection, not only on the female side, but also on the bull side to select animals to go forward with um, that outperformed their contemporaries. And so I really feel that it, it gave us from a genomic standpoint uh, in this cow herd, it really gave us a, a leg up because he was doing it 10 or 15, maybe 20 years, perhaps in front of, um, you know, some of his other colleagues. And so what, we, what we've done since then is uh, between my dad and myself um, is a lot of the same. The, the breeding tactics are relatively similar to what Martin did, uh, but we just have so many more tools and so many more, um, you know, things to look at and help us interpret and understand all this, all the genomics. So, um, so we've maintained um, a cow herd here at Jorgensen Land and Cattle. It's about a thousand head right now. We like to refer to that cow herd as, as the parent stock cow herd for all of what we do. Um, this year, we're going to market in, in either a lease or a direct sale. Um, a little over 5,200 bulls, and uh, that puts us for sure number one in the nation and, and maybe number one in the world. I don't know of anybody else marketing that many bulls um, from one genetic source. So, um, you know, you, you think about, well, we have a thousand cows. Well, it doesn't really, the math doesn't work out there with 5,000 bulls. So how we accumulate all of these bulls is through a, our cooperator herds. We have 15 of them. And they will, they will come into our, our cow herd or they'll, they'll come in and select the very best genetics that, that we use through, you know, and through our parent stock cow herd and then use them on their cows. And then we in turn buy those bull calves at weaning time and then, and then uh, you know, take them through the selection criteria just like we would our own. So that's, that's, how, many, that's how we get so many bulls together. Um, we have our own genetic evaluation which is really pretty cool. Um, and a lot of these bulls are not registered. Um, a very high percentage of them are not registered through the American Angus Association. And so um, every one of these bulls that we market will have a DNA test, a Zoetis HD50K test. And then all that data gets uh, put into our genetic evaluation. It's called the ideal beef evaluation. And then that, that, that's now used to help us, you know, understand the goods and the bads and, and help you know, our clients make breeding selection. Uh, so that's been a great tool for us um, here in the past three to five years. And I, I know Nick will talk more about that because he's pretty hands-on with it. Um, but yeah, I guess in a nutshell, that's that's kind of our cattle business. You got, I got a question. You guys always just black Angus or do you used to have, do other things? Or? We used to have a, a Charlet herd and also a Simital herd, but that was in the 80s you know, when the Continentals were really pretty popular. Um, since then, we've pretty much phased out of 
well, we have phased out of um, those two breeds. Um, we still have a, a small group of bulls that we market that would have a skosh of Simmental in them yet. Um, but for the most part, we, we are 100% um, Black Angus. Okay. So when did, uh, when did the transition come from the, uh, Ryan said about the turkeys, and then you guys started getting into cattle? Uh, that was the late 1940s or 1950s. Was that a, uh, was there a reason behind it or? <laughs> well, I think, I, I don't think there was a much uh, love loss when dad got rid of the turkeys. I, I think uh, it was more of a, uh, they were the survival type animals of the 1930s, the depression era, you know, uh, they had cows too and pigs, but Turkey is kind of where they, they they made enough money to sustain the family. But I think dad's passion was always centered and focused heavily on the cattle. And so, uh, interestingly enough, he just surrounded himself with some really good people in terms of, you know, finding the right genetics. And they, they found some sources that they started building that herd. And again, Cody can really, really elaborate on how that whole thing started. But, you know, I think dad's passion was always in the cattle. Did you guys, did you guys, when did you pivot into leasing the bulls or more of the bull leasing? Was that in the last 10 years? Yeah, that, that actually started in the late, mid to late nineties. Uh, when that's, when that was going on, um, we just started in a very small, you know, maybe 20, 30 head, just a few clients that actually wanted to know kind of towards the end of the breeding season, um, if they could just lease some bulls rather than, you know, rather than owning them. And, and dad started doing it pretty soon. It's 50 head pretty soon. The next year it's a hundred and, and yeah. it just kind of exponentially grew from there. It, it really, we didn't really know how our, why, you know, it was going to take off like that. But uh, once we, once we got a kind of a system in place, um, then um, it really made it nice for everybody involved, not only us, but also our clients, right. Where they didn't have to dip out all that, that cash to, to go buy your bulls. And, and it's such a convenience for them that they, you know, when, when you don't need them the 10 months out of the year, they're just laying around destroying stuff. They, they can send them back to us. Right. Yeah. And so, um, so what's the, the, the biggest, what's the length of term? Most people will lease the bull for 60 to 90 days, 60, 60 to 90 days. Yep. And they'll, and we lease bulls, um, as, as yearlings, and then we'll lease that bull again as a two-year-old. And then once we got the second lease out of them, like this time of year right now, we're sending the bulls that have been leased twice, we're sending them down to the Southern market, basically all the states around the Gulf of Mexico, Texas, all the way around in Florida. And, and that's the outlet, that's the end of the rope for those bulls. So you get, they get leased twice up here in the Midwest, and then you go down to the Southern market and uh, those guys are buying those bulls. You know, that that's a big market. There's a lot of cows down there, as you well know, um, just south of the, the fescue belt, Florida. Um, those guys need an Angus bull to breed to those Santa Gertrudis cows um, just to get some quality grade into them. And they need to buy them in load lots, and they need to buy them pretty reasonable because, um, you know, they, it's just a harsh environment for them to, to live in. So what we have found is if we can lease them twice up in this part of the world and get them through a hard part of their life, the get them through their teeth, you know, their teething process, and then get that rumen expanded enough to where they can eat, you know, 70 to 80 pounds of that really wet grass that's that's down there to get their nutrition. If if they don't have enough rumen expansion, they won't they won't get enough nutrition while they're breeding cows. So once we've gotten them to that point in their life, we call them a smart bull. And that's, that's actually, uh, it's turned into a really nice product for us down there. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Jordan? What, what are the smart bulls? I saw some stuff on that. You guys are promoting all that now. Yeah, that's exactly like what I just said. They're, they're a bull that has been leased twice up in this part of the world and aged fully through his teething process. He's uh, about 30 months of age. Okay. Um, he's coming three year old. And so he's, uh, he's been through the hard part and he's got enough room and expansion to, to go down there. They're, they're actually lasting longer than what we, what we want them to, to be, to be right honest with you. Um, they've, they're, so what, uh, what's like the biggest 
what what are the moving parts of leasing the bulls? Like, why isn't everybody doing it? I'm assuming just the logistics of it all is just crazy. Yeah. You mean why are other pre-bred people not not doing it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, they. Uh, I mean, it takes like Brian had mentioned. It it takes a ton of feed, and it takes a ton of capital. I mean, we're you guys were um, even though we collect two leases out of them, we yeah. still have a ton of capital tied up, and they're they are in our feed yard or on our place or in our control for 24 months of age or 24 months, two full years. So when you buy that wean calf, you know, you're spending 16 to $1,800 on that wean calf. And then all of the feed that it takes to get that bull developed through two breeding seasons, it, you can, you can imagine how much capital it takes just in one animal to keep that thing going. How much feed do you guys raise? You guys raise a lot of your own feed on the farm? Brian, Nick? That's the goal. Um, you know, obviously we, we've got the acres to support the demand right now. Uh, when it doesn't rain, when you get into a drought situation, we do have to supplement that with, you know, some proteins and some energies. But by and large, the goal is to be able to produce all the, all the foodstuffs for them. So about 65 to 75% of what we grow on the arable acres is going to be committed to feed. Um, and then if you include the acres that we consider for cover crop and then subsequently graze, it's, it's close to 80, 85% of the acres. So, you know, it, it, we really, really push to get um, as much out of that soil as we can and still build that soil system. We don't want to deplete it because when you're removing um, lots of carbon, when you're removing crops for, for forages, for example, you're removing a lot of the residue potential. And so, uh, our goal here is to try and maintain and build uh, our organic matters year to year. So if we start depleting it, then it's going to start costing us a lot more and we're just, we're simply depleting the soil. So having the livestock as part of that is really, really important for me for a couple of reasons. First of all, from a rotational standpoint, I can grow virtually anything I want to grow and we can turn it into feed. Uh, which brings me a diverse platter of crops that I can throw out there. Uh, and secondly, it's a market source for me. So I don't have to market a lot of the crops that we're growing other than uh, like the soybeans and the, the cereal grains, which we value add all the cereal grains by running through a certified seed process. I shouldn't say all, but a, a good share of those are, are value added. Um, <clears throat> so the cover crop thing is really important for us because it, it's it's really a big part of the soil health system and sustaining a root system and building organic matter, but it's also a feed source for those animals. And so uh, when we can pull animals away from the feed yard and put them out on cover crop, it's, it's not only a cost savings in the production side of the bulls, but it's also a, a soil building uh, factor for me and the crop side. So We've been doing a lot of that. Uh, the economics of that are fantastic. Unfortunately, when you get a year like this year where the cover crops got three inches tall and quit, um, we kind of lose that potential. Um, so we can't get it every year, but when we do, we really capitalize on it. So, yeah, I mean, when these animals are, when we had this feed yard full uh, bulls, we're feeding a quarter million pounds of feed a day. So it takes a lot of groceries to keep those boys going. So. That's my big goal is to produce everything that we can energy and protein wise throughout this operation. What's the hay cost up there? Is it expensive as it is other parts of the country? Yeah. I mean, there's trip County is one of the number one counties of hay production in South Dakota. And it's, it's, there's wheels under a lot of hay right now, just going South and going West. And, you know, I'm hearing 150 to $190 for Rome grass hay. It's just crazy. So even straws bringing $120 a ton. It's just nuts. So, um, you know, we, we don't sell hardly any hay. We, we keep everything we can. You know, we try and keep at least, at least a year and a half or two years supply here, which that's tough on a year like this. But uh, we, yeah, we try and keep as much of that on inventory as we possibly can. So who was like one of the, who was like the main visionary of the operation? Was it your dad, Brian, or? seems like it might be a hybrid of everybody. It seems like maybe he made some changes. And then when you and Greg came in, it seemed like there was quite a few changes that happened in the nineties and you guys are uh, starting to get into some more stuff now that the boys yeah. put a time under their belt. 
that's a really good question, Jordan. I think dad was, he had a really, really deep and strong vision of, of family operated production agriculture. And again, it goes back to, he taught us about diverse, you know, being diverse and so forth. But I think the number one thing that he gave to us was his willingness to give up responsibilities to the younger people. He allowed me to do a lot of things that he would never have done. He allowed Greg to do things that he would probably have never done. Uh, and so I think that in turn, that's the greatest legacy. I think or one of the greatest legacies that he left us was uh, the, for, for us older guys to have the willingness to step aside and let the young guys take leadership. And that's what we've done with Nick. I mean, three, four years ago, we turned him into our CEO and he's, He's been one of the, the brightest and most, uh, you know, broad thinking individuals that we've ever brought into this operation. And he's driving this thing forward quicker than I could have or Cody could have by himself or Greg. Or, and it's, you just let young people who have energy and desire bring them in and let them run, it, let them lead. And I think dad gave us that vision. He never, never told me you can't do that. That's not the way I do that. He just said, if you're going to do this. I think that's great. You know, you're accountable for it. You know, you got to make it work. You got to prove to me you're going to make it work. But he never said, no way. It's my way or the highway. And so many operations have failed to get into the next, the second or third or fourth generation simply because the first or second or third generation was not willing to let go. Yeah, well, there's, there's another aspect there, you guys, that, that dad mentioned about control and leadership and it's all correct there there's one thing he that he left out that in my opinion is equally as important is that not only did he was he willing to pass you know decision making responsibility on but he was willing to pass equity on too not you know ownership in the business um, you know he made sure that that was something that was top of mind so you didn't end up with and it's a situation that a lot of people are in an egg today where you know guys like my dad, my dad's age, have been working on the farm for, you know, 30, 40 years. And at the age of 60, they're still a hired man to their dad, you know, who's, who's 90. Um, it's just not, it, it's not that way here. It's never been that way here. I mean, all the way back to even when grandpa was a kid. Um, and it just kind of seeds that, that, that thought process and that legacy in all of our heads around, you know, we're not serving our business right if we don't transition responsibility and ownership to the next generation effectively, right? Um, which, which I'm really proud of because that is not the case. I, I'm afraid to say probably in the large majority of operations, that's not the case. I, I would agree with you, Nick. I think Jordan and I have seen that as we started this podcast up, especially for the third and fourth generation uh, operations like Brian was talking. You know, the really successful ones that we've been talking with, they're saying the same thing you guys are like, you know, have some skin in the game, give the kids some skin in the game, some ownership. And then I, I feel like also they're good at um, it seemed like last week with the Stutzmans and some of the others Jordan Longview Farms and, and the other third and fourth generation, like some of the other older guys are, are good at operational, you know, managing the operations and they pass on some of the visionary type you know, roles to the younger kids and let them uh, go nuts and kind of guide and, and pick new revenue channels and new streams. And, and some of the guys like to just run the operations and, and manage the operations side of the thing. So, yeah, I think it's a great combo. So. And, you know, Kevin, our, our situation there is even just is a little different than that. In that the three of us um, really don't have any, day-to-day -day operational responsibility or direct reports for that matter. Um, Brian, Cody, and myself, you know, are, are in a large part dedicated to, you know, management of the business, you know, thinking about the future, all that kind of stuff. And we have a, a good, strong team and structure in place such that um, we've got, I mean, this, depending on how you feel about family businesses, might be consequential or it might not. But we've got non-family members out running the day-to-day -day things, right? Which in my opinion is, you know, you're running a business that just is what it is. But for some people, that's a huge step to make, right? To turn over responsibility, especially the day-to-day -day stuff, which we all like to do. I mean, right? That's what most people get into agriculture to do is I, they, they love operating a farm ranch, right? But 
we made the distinct choice here to rise above that, if you will, um, in the name of guiding this business in the direction it needs to go. Yeah, it makes sense. I think that's a big step. It's a tough one to make too. Jordan's battling that right now in his own business. So running around, shaking with his head cut off, you know, trying to do everything. And, uh, you know, he, it's hard. He, he's trying to figure out how to hire people and get them to stay and unfortunately like you know i'm not i'm not speaking about you know what's going on with you all but yeah. in a lot of cases what people end up doing is they'll end up just giving up and they'll put their head back down and go to work and they'll let that they they won't do the planning they won't do the long-range thinking they won't take the effort to manage the business because they're so engrossed in running the business that, you know, they can't focus on the stuff that, you know, when you talk about, you know, we have a large egg business, but even on smaller ones, you're talking about a lot of dollars, right? From a revenue perspective, from a balance sheet perspective, these are not small businesses. And this is not chump changes that we're dealing with this in this industry. Um, and I think just a lot of operations do a disservice to what their business could be just because they, they some of them struggle and keep trying and struggle, but some just don't try at all. To, to go to that next step. How are you guys with hiring folks and keeping them on? Is no it takes problem. a lot of work. Yeah. Um, you know, I got a lot of open positions right now. Um, you know, we're, we're a growing business. Um, it, it just, it, it takes, it's a full-time job for someone just to, to stay on top of that, manage the workforce, understand, you know, where we need labor and what kind of people we need to hire. I'll tell you right now, one of the, the biggest problems we have is, the first problem is is finding people that want to that want to work. I mean, for lack of a better term, that want to do the jobs that we have open, right? Which not a lot of people in society want to do anymore, to be honest with you. The second step we run into um, that, frankly, is a bigger stumbling block for us is housing is really hard in our part of the world. You know, we could get someone to move from Virginia to take a job, but they can't move because they can't find a house. Oh well. Uh in our part of the world. And so, you know, then you start having discussions as a family, you know, do you start owning properties and becoming a landlord? And that's just, you know, it's not easy. It just, it's a lot of work in this environment. All right. Huh. Yeah. It's a another, lot of, go ahead. Yeah. Another question for Nick I had was uh, what, what, what's it like, like you're the, you're the youngest of the bunch right now. What's it like uh, being the CEO and what was it like taking over that responsibility? How, how did that even come up? Was that a role you wanted to take on or you just got thrown in the fire? Or? No, it's probably a combination of the two. Interesting, I mean, interesting dynamic. We don't see a lot. Yeah, of it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic for sure. And I'll, I'll let dad and Cody talk about how it happened because I was actually, I didn't really have a lot to do with it. I mean, I, my, my background um, and what I really, what my passion is probably fits that role well, but you have to understand something when CEO here means something different than a CEO at a co-op or at a bank because of that family dynamic, uh, if you will. I mean, it's in the traditional sense, it, it's just not feasible to, to be a, to be a CEO in a traditional perspective to your father. It just doesn't, does not work that way. So when you hear CEO at Dragon's Atlantic Kettle, how it should be viewed is maybe from an overall strategic direction, from a from an accountability perspective to budgeting, forecasting, long-range planning for the business, um, things that aren't related to Brian's wheelhouse, which is agronomics, and Cody's wheelhouse, which is livestock. Um, I kind of fill in the gaps, but Brian and Cody aren't directly accountable to me in the traditional sense that you would look at it, right? So it's a different dynamic. Um, we really are, you know, we're, we're all three equals in my opinion, you know, at the end of the day, um, it's just, they call me CEO because of some of the specific responsibilities I've got. It really comes. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, really, it really comes down to the fact that, you know, every one of us as partners have passions of what we do and what we don't really like to do. And it's interesting the way it all kind of fell out. You know, Cody, you're kind of more or less followed into Greg's footsteps. However, he 
Cody capitalized more on, on understanding the cow herd and, and building the cow herd and building the genetic side of it. And Greg was more in the bull sales aspect of it. Nicholas always have had a, a super strong strength in numbers and, and business uh, orientation. So when he got his, he got a master's degree, uh, the farm decided to get him pay for his MBA. So he, he got another, you know, another degree, just focusing on business law and different things and the business side of things. And it was at that point when we did that, that, and then knowing his desire to come back to the operation, that's when, that's when Cody and I really said, you know what, let's let him do this so that we can focus on what we really like to do. I mean, Cody and I ran the business for, you know, 25, 30 years. So, um, you know, and, and Greg and, and dad were on the sidelines for the most part, just letting it kind of come to pass. And, and so it was, it was really a good time. The timing was really perfect um, in that, you know, he's next 10 years, uh, 14 years younger than Cody and Cody's son, Philip now is a junior in college. He's 10 years behind Nick. So the, there's just this natural progression of letting the young guys come in and take leadership. And every one of us have had a different passion and a desire. Nick's just happened to be numbers and business. And it was just a natural, natural transition for him. Yeah. I think it's I, Go ahead, Cody. I, I, I think Nick might be sugarcoating it a little bit when he says that he doesn't, he doesn't hold us accountable. He may not from the emotional side. <laughs> he point. is. But we we really do take and respect exactly what he does, and so there there is a there is an accountability accountability piece there that you know we just we 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 just respect, right? I think the three of us that's the biggest thing is, uh, in, including my father, there there's just so much utmost respect for each other um, that you know Nick isn't going to come crashing down on us if we don't meet a sales goal or something, but he will help us dig to the bottom of it and figure out what the hell we did wrong. And I think that's where that's where it's really beautiful. Yeah. You know, Cody, when I when I say the word accountability, you know, I think a lot of people when they hear CEO, you know, you're in charge and whatever the CEO says goes. Right. And that's just that's not the way it is. here. No, it's, it's just that's a, right. Slightly different dynamic. Yeah, I think it's like drafting or positioning players on a football team. I mean, you try to put people where their strengths are at. And, uh, you know, and I think that's important to do in the business as well. I mean, Sounds like that's kind of what you guys have done. And Nick has his strengths and, and uh, Brian and Cody have theirs and you guys are all playing the right position. So it's, yep. uh, it's it, having close. I think it's really important. One of the, we went through a, a, a management level transition process several years ago, and we're still working with an individual that helped us get through that. But, you know, we just created a flow chart of, where each piece of us belongs and how information is to flow down and over through all the different levels of management. And as long as we stay within those parameters of, and not jumping through the, the boxes and skipping over people. In other words, if we have a breakdown in communication, that becomes an inherent cancer that completely disrupts the whole operation. And so with this whole new management scheme, Nicholas is kind of the bubble that everybody has to come to. Uh, you have, you know, the owners, which he's part of the management all has to come through Nicholas. He's the CEO. He's the captain. And all those directors of operations below us, the people that they manage have to, that information all has to flow in a, in a logical manner. We can't, Cody and I can't just go out and circumvent what we've dictated to our directors of ops and tell the guys to do something differently. That just doesn't work. And ironically, that's how most farm operations are run. If you have a father and son team and they've got hired men, you have an inherent issue of guys getting mixed, you know, mixed uh, uh, signals from both of those guys. And so we try and prevent that as much as we possibly can. And Nicholas is kind of the, he's the bumper. He catches all the, he catches everything that happens. And so um, that's part of, that's the hard part of, for me, I think that's the hard part for being a CEO is you've got to manage all that crap. Well, dad, you, you made a good point there. I mean, would you not, I've heard you say it before. I mean, go back 30 years. Mm. Is that not the situation that you were in? <laughs> yeah. Right. And I'm not, I'm not saying that to, to discredit Greg or Martin. No, it was. 
when I came back from college, when I don't want to show any disrespect to them either, but when I came back from college, it was, it was a cluster because uh, Greg was telling guys to do one thing. Dad was telling another, they're both very strong willed Then they would get into arguments and it was just, you know, everything got done, but it was kind of a, it was kind of a shit show more or less. And so we started having business meetings every Monday morning. And those meetings were inclusive of all of our employees. And we would basically set the agenda for the week. We would review the previous and, and set the agenda for the, the week ahead. We still do that today. So we've done that for over 30 years. And I still, I, every operation I come across, they still ask, how do you do that? How does that work? How do you make that happen? You just do. I mean, it, it's just part of our, it's part of our genealogy here. We just, we communicate on a business type level every week. So it's so, and it's so important, I think, in the success of an operation, um, whether it's one employee or 30 employees, it doesn't matter. Um, you just need to have that level of communication, but you need a leader. You got to have a leader to push things forward. Well, see that. And, and, and again, to your point, it, smaller operations like ours was 30 years ago, you know, where let's, what are we talking about? A couple owners that are working day to day and, you know, a handful of, of employees, you know, two to five, it's not ideal, but you can survive in that dynamic, right? Cause there's not all that many people that you have to communicate with. Right. Um, that's a different issue when you have 44 employees, it's a completely different issue when you have 44 employees, right? Then that starts dictating the need for a clear chain of command, right? And so everyone knows who to take orders from, who to take direction from. I mean, our, we would not be where we were at. Like, I can guarantee you that we would not be where we are with 44 employees today if there was not a strong, you know, organizational chart in place and a good communication structure because we get a lot of people that apply for jobs or that work for us to say, man, I came from a place where I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing day to day, or I would get conflicting orders from, you know, my superiors. And that just, that does not happen here. And I think that's you know, just a critical part of what makes things tick so well here is, is strong communication and strong leadership across the board. So you guys are dealing with 40 to 50 employees now. Yeah, today it's it's 44 today. We're at our we're at our seasonal peak right now, if you will. Um, when the Lazy J Grand Lodge is open, that that brings, you know, a significant amount of part time help on. Um, yeah. Tell us about it. The lodge. Yeah, heck yeah. Yeah, I don't know who's best to talk about that one, you guys. Um, it's probably not me. Who's? Uh, let's start with this. Whose idea was? Whose idea was the lodge? Like, when did when did the lodge become a thing on the farm and start making money? That was Cody and I both. That was Cody's always been the hunter. Um, he's always had the desire to to take hunters out and and show them a good time. I don't know, Cody. How many how many day hunters did you have up until 2011 when we bought the property? Yeah, I think we were doing around I want to say three three fifty to four hundred gun days just in trespass fee day hunters something like that. We're, the, we killed three thousand birds, so whatever that would add up to. Right. And so we bought, we bought this property near us that we actually had been farming for, we'd leased the property, both the pasture and the, and the crop ground from this doctor from Virginia that owned it. And he decided to sell it. And so I just simply asked him, I said, well, would you want to sell it to us? And he said, well, I can't believe you actually want it. And I said, well, of course we do. It's beautiful property. So we <laughs> made the steps and bought the property, 20, basically 2,400 acres. And with that came his hunting business that he had already in place. He had like eight groups of guys, mainly from the East Coast. And they had a little farmhouse that they used as a cookhouse. And they had a double wide that they used as a bunkhouse. Pretty rudimentary stuff, but the client base was quite strong. So we inherited that with the purchase. And we were still running. Cody was still doing the day hunting thing. And so in 2011, the fall of that, we ran their business the way they had run it. Cody was still doing day hunts. We quickly realized that their facilities were extremely subpar. A lot of their client base was starting to really complain about, you know, the food was eh, in the kitchen, you know, the kitchens, this kitchen accommodations were really lousy. The 
bedroom accommodations were lousy. So Cody and I just said, you know what? We want to maintain this business structure, but we got to make some massive changes. And that's when we sat down literally in December of 2011, decided to build this lodge. Uh, we started developing mental plans of what we wanted to do. In that following February, we hired an uh, uh, architect and a contractor. And by May, we broke down or started broke, broke ground to get it started building it. And by October 18th of 2012, we had our first clients in Lazy J Grand. So it was a very fast, very quick, expedited process. But we knew if we we're going to build a two and a half, you know, two point two million dollar lodge, we needed to have people in it that year to make it start to cash flow. So, and it's been building ever since. It's just been a we haven't looked back. Did you guys just do a big remodel or a big? Uh, no, we built from scratch. We built it's, from scratch. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a twenty-two. It's 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 seventeen thousand square feet. It's 22, oh, wow. 22 hotel rooms, okay. and then a big common area and big dining area, big kitchen, big beautiful commercial kitchen, and then there's just in the recent couple of years we built an outbuilding that we use for storage, but it also used it's getting used for uh, it has a bar in it, a smoking room. Uh, a place to have the guides, the dogs, and then it has turned into an event center as well. It's turned into a wedding venue. Oh, so wow. we're doing, you know, off season stuff too. And now we've hired a full-time chef. We have a full-time manager. Um, and so we're really looking forward to building that beyond just the hunting thing. So we're doing uh, all kinds of corporate retreats. We're doing seminar type things. We're doing reunions. We're doing weddings, birthdays. And it's just building and building all the time. So is the next several weeks prime season coming up here with the pheasants? Or? It's done. It started. Yeah, we've, we, we're preserved, so we can start September 1 if we wanted to. But generally, it's the third week of September when we really get rolling. And it'll be constant hunters now until about the second or third week of December. So what was like the big decision to move forward with the remodel? Did you guys like really think that no this remodel, could, they didn't do a remodel or not the remodel, the rebuild. Did you like really think that this thing could cash flow or were you like, hell, if all else fails, we can use it for our cattle clients. Like what, what was really that like thing that pushed you over the edge and said, let's go all in on this. Well, once we started the design process, because initially we were just going to build a, a new kitchen, right? And then it was going to be, well, maybe we'll make accommodations for, you know, housing them as well. Well, then it just, it just quickly turned into this lodge. It turned into what we have today. And what we really didn't realize was how that was going to bring us value as a family, because we can bring so many people into a really, really nice facility and tell them our story and our vision and then every group of hunters that comes through and i should leave, let cody do this because he's he's the one that deals with the hunters but every group of hunters that comes through that place we mandate that they get on a bus and come take a tour of our operation including this office and our feed yard and we try and tell them the whole story of how we try and take every acre of soil and add value to it so it's really become kind of our ambassador if you facility if you will um for agriculture and for what we do. But the vision that when we had, when we first started building, that wasn't part of it, but we've learned to expound that vision every year into what we want it to be. That, that's yeah, good. So, so Go when ahead. we, when Brian and I were, when we literally dumped all this stuff out on a table and we just started sorting it out. Right. And uh, you know, when we looked at all of the, when we looked at the resource that we had, which is the land and at that time, we were we were not a preserve status. We were going to try to operate this business on solely um, wild pheasants, um, and um, we operated it that way for what eight years, Brian? Nine maybe? years, so, yeah. Nine years, almost, yeah. Uh, yeah, and and so, um, you know, that's we we instead of doing all the day hunting, um, which was every day, and then also you know the the clientele that we that we inherited through this through the SKUs per purchase, uh, it kind of just made sense to, to combine it all together and build this facility. And uh, it, it actually, you know, it actually made made a little less work for, for everybody because it was such a great facility, right? And then like Brian mentioned, it does, 
you know, we used to make it kind of optional whether um, the hunters would like to come over and go on a farm tour. Recently, we've we've really made it uh, not an option. We've made it part of the suite. And um, just as he said, it, it's turned into, um, you know, a little advocacy for production agriculture. And it, and it just, um, you hear them talking after they get back uh, after the tour, and it just gives them a, a small sense of where their food really does come from. And uh, these guys are already three and four generations removed from agriculture, right? And so it, it gives them just a little bit of a better idea of, you know, uh, a production agricult agriculturalist is not this guy in bib overhauls with a straw hat and, and straw sticking out of his mouth. It's not, um, you know, as, as you guys all well know. So it, it's been a really good piece of advocacy for our family. Heck yeah. I think, uh, I think everybody is, should be appreciative of folks like you, you know, trying to, uh, trying, like we said, trying to battle it out there and, and show folks what, uh, where food really is coming from and the people that are really got boots on the ground and making it happen. So I think we, mm -hmm. we battle a lot of fake news in this, uh, <laughs> in our world now. So, you know, I think it is a little bit crazy. So I, I think yeah. it's awesome to have you guys well, doing that. Kevin, and I think a, a big part of that, in my opinion, is, is we as agriculture don't do a good enough job of actively telling our story. And if you right. don't form the narrative, a narrative is going to form on its own. Right. And I, I said it earlier in this call. I mean, I think just a lot of us in egg tend to just put our heads down and go to work. Right. Shut up and go to work. And, you know, we just don't take that tack. I mean, we, we, we give a tour to anyone who will take a tour and we talk about what we do to anyone who will listen. And I'm not saying that, that, you know, we're, we're doing God's work or anything. Right. But I mean, it's just that simple step of, making sure that we're controlling that discussion with the people that don't know anything about it, talking that so they see right off the bat, the positive stuff we're doing and have asked questions and get truthful answers that are good. Yeah. You know, it's just, that that's the best way in my opinion to, to combat yeah. that negative narrative against egg. Well, you guys will get a kick out of it. They, uh, so Jordan and I'll call folks that have a great business course and say, Hey, you want to do this podcast with us? We think it's a great way to, give back to people and younger people, you know, people that are looking to build an ag business or things like that. There's a lot of folks that are like, nah, we just want to fly under the radar. We don't want anyone knowing what we're doing. You know, they don't want anyone knowing what to do. And I'm like, but they're the same guys that bitched me about what Chipotle saying or what Patagonia's doing or what climate change people are saying, but yet they want no one to know any of their anything. And I sit there like you guys and the last few people that have done it and, you look at like Musk or uh, some of these other people built great. And they built it on an open source platform, let other people share some of the things that they're working on and share some of their knowledge. And, you know, it's uh, obviously it's helped propel Tesla. It's helped propel a lot of people. And I commend you guys for letting people come take a tour and look at things and keeps you guys on your toes and lets people see what's happening in the real world. And I, th I think it's great. I, I wish we could get more of it because like you said, how are we going to battle the fake news or the bad publicity if we don't have people that are out there willing to share. The yeah. And it's, and to add to that, it's only getting worse. I mean, you, you, where you guys are located. I mean, most, a lot of the people around your area in South Dakota, where your farm is, it's, I mean, most people know what a farm is. They've been on a farm. I mean, we're closer here to Kansas city. And I mean, I'll, I'll travel to the downtown and meet some friends and it's, it's crazy the amount of people you'll meet that have never been on a farm, don't know what a farm is. And, and there's mm -hmm. farms all over the place around Kansas city and they've they just never no idea. And then it, it, and then with my sister up in New York, like it's even worse and worse. Like it's, it's, <laughs> it's even way crazy. It's like yeah. unreal, but there's, we're, we're, I got a schedule of a, a dairy farm we're doing up there in New York in a couple of weeks. And I mean, people are exposed to these farms, but for whatever reason, just very disconnected and couldn't tell you the first thing about it. So I yeah, George and I, you guys know you travel around. We travel around a lot. We're on the West coast and East coast with my daughter, but we'll overhear people in these restaurants conversation, just how horrible the farmers are and what they do to yeah. these animals and what they did. I'm just like, are you shitting me? Like, this is not, I mean, these people can't be real, but it is real. It's out there. So well, I, I think that's why I, we go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say it. I'd like to believe 
and maybe this is me being naive, that in a lot of cases, that is not because of ill intent on the individual that's saying it. It has everything to do with poor exposure and poor education, right? And I think the general consumer, like those people in the restaurant, right? If you had the ability to just right there, you know, grab them in a machine, teleport over to an operation just real quick and just while you got their attention and say, no, look, look, I understand you're confused and you're concerned, but let's dispel those concerns and, and we'll talk to you about what really goes on. And the fact that no one does that, like I said, if there's no narrative, a narrative will form and they're going to listen to, you know, animal rights groups and stuff like that, that take the opportunity to, to fill their heads. And I, well, I that's think what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. These smart people, Nick, these are people in Ivy League schools. I'm hearing say yeah. these things. Like, I mean, these are intelligent. I'm like, Holy educated shit. people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm like, right. Holy shit, this can't be happening, but it is yeah. happening. Yeah. So, that my dad was always very transparent and very proud of you know, the, the accomplishments that not only he had, but the rest of us had. And he would, whenever we had people here, he would drive them, show them every cow and every pasture and, and every piece of equipment running in the fields. I mean, he made it a point that they saw everything. I mean, he took his clothes off, man. He, he didn't have any, anything to hide. And I think that's still our mantra today. We, we want people to know what it is we do, the good, the bad, the ugly. And, you know, we, 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 we don't hide anything. We just, we let them know that, you know, Hey, this is a very capital intense business and this is what we do. And this is the wheels we have in motion. And, uh, we, we, we share everything. with them. I think it's great. It's definitely one of the keys we're finding to success, uh, amongst the, the bigger operations that have had the most success is transparency, letting the kids get involved, passing on some ownership, staying open-minded, all the things you guys have talked about, the key points. So don't you agree, Glenn? Yeah. Yeah. Bouncing off that, I guess, to kind of wrap this thing up and get you guys back to harvesting. Um, what, what, so what does the next generation look like to you guys? Uh, Cody, you, do you guys say you got a boy about dental college, Cody, or? Yep, I do. I, I actually have three kids. Uh, Philip, he's my oldest. Uh, he's 21. Uh, he's a junior at South Dakota State. Uh, my daughter, Emma, is uh, a freshman at South Dakota State. And then I have young William. He's an eighth grader here. And um, um, Philip is very, very Go Jacks. interesting. <laughs> Go yeah, Jacks. Jacks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I got to do the same thing, Brian. Yeah, that's great. So, yeah, Philip's really passionate about the cows. Uh, they've been blessed that he really has taken interest in the cows, and not only the cows, but just the, you know, the, the management of uh, the different grasses and is even uh, a little bit of animal nutrition with some, you know, soil science involved with that. So um, I'm excited for him to, to come back and add to the operation. Uh, my daughter, Emma, she's, she, is, she wants to be a doctor. She wants to be a pediatrician. So... Um, as far as being part of the operation, she, she's, she's actually told me that she doesn't want to do that. So I'm okay with that. And then young William, he is, um, he's very excited. He, he also loves uh, the cattle side of things. He, uh, COVID was really good for my kids, actually, believe it or not. Um, William was 11 when they got out of, when they got, you know, when they didn't have to go to school in the March of March of 2020. And uh, William got to spend, uh, what two or three months in the in the bull barn and basically end up being a vet tech uh, with our veterinarian semen testing bulls so now he he wants to try to become a veterinarian and he's got a lot of work to do but that's what he'd like to do so so where where does where does philip fit in the operation uh come next year when he's done school i mean I, I i could probably let nick answer this more but i would i would definitely think he'd be a a key person in, in uh, managing a team that, that has um, the responsibility of our cow herd that we, that we operate here, uh, the, the thousand mama cows that we have here. Yeah. Perfect. Biggest so problem right now is just he's, he's only here three months a year. And it's already obvious that you know, he's going to bring good value back to the operation and just wish time would go a little faster. It's, he'll, be a, he'll be a good at the team when he's done it. So when, uh, when, when do you step back more, Brian? I already am. Okay. Uh, it, it really, Nicholas has taken on a lot of the responsibilities, the mundane responsibilities that, that I had from the business side. I still, I do all the crop planning. 
Um, I buy all the inputs. Uh, you know, I, I basically write all the work orders that have to be written in terms of the operational side for, for the crops. But to be honest with you, Jordan, I could be doing that from my camper. We spent 75 nights in our camper this summer. Um, my wife retired from this operation in January. Uh, she went through two bouts of cancer and you start reevaluating what's more important in life. And so Nicholas, thank goodness, is here. Cody's here. This place is, is going to run just fine without me here. So um, my goal is I will be completely out in terms of sitting in this chair by December of 27. So that's basically five more years. Yeah. I'm 57 right now. Um, but I'll still maintain some ownership, but I mean, seriously, I can do what I do right here today. I can do from anywhere and I can be in Portugal or I can be in Hawaii or I can be in Costa Rica. I can do that. The only thing I miss is not seeing the crops. I need to be able to get my eyes on the crops at least several times during the growing season. But, uh, yeah. we have nine grandkids now. Oh, Those are more, that's more important to me than sitting in this chair. Where'd you guys travel to? Anywhere, anywhere good? What, what would you like the best? Oh, Alaska was awesome. I've uh, been to Hawaii a number of times. Costa Rica was beautiful. Um, we're doing Jamaica in February. I mean, we, we travel a lot. It's just, wow. it's, we, we always did. We, you know, even when Nick was growing up, we had his two sisters, the, the, the five of us would go to Disney World, you know, when they were just little and do all kinds of things. Traveling to me is really, really important. It's, it's, tra it's, it's important to both Brenda and I that you see the world and understand that there's something just outside ideal South Dakota. I know farmers, I'm literally, I sit on a board of directors, a local board with a farmer that has never left the state of South Dakota. He's 68 years old. He's never left the state of South Dakota. Yeah, I know several, I know a lot of people like that. It's, it's interesting. I mean, each to their own, I guess, but yeah, I'm with yeah. you. I like to go and try to see new perspectives, new things. And yeah, we're, we're foodies. We love to eat. We love yeah. to cook. We love to learn, you know, we, we just, we just want to see new things. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. One, Nick, uh, what's, what's something we haven't asked you, Nick? Is there anything we haven't asked you? I, I want to ask Nick on this. I was going to ask him earlier, but one, I think this would be a good question for you guys. We haven't touched on these podcasts yet, but like, how does like the business family life balance work with you guys? I think like me and my dad and our family have that problem sometimes to where hell I'm going over for dinner, but all we seem to talk about is work. <laughs> I'm about to get married and uh, my fiance. Yeah, congratulations, by the way. I saw that. Yeah, thanks. My, she's always like, gosh, dang, are we going over to your parents' house to talk about work all night? Like. <laughs> It's just, it's just what we talk about though. And I think, I think we do have a tough time finding, drawing that fine line. I mean, even well, when I, mean, there. I, I can share my perspective. I mean, one of the things I, I didn't mention when Cody answered the question, I've got, I've got four children, uh, four sons. Uh, they're all young. The oldest is seven, five-year-old, two, two-year-olds, but one of them 15. <laughs> what's that? He's He's going on 15, though. Yeah, he's a smart little bugger. Um, oh, man. And, you know, I can't I can't say right now if any of them are going to want to come back. You know, my take on it when people ask is, well, I just want I want to make sure I've done a good job shepherding the business such that if they want to come back, that there's a spot for them, assuming that they're qualified. Right. Um, you know, that's that's one big thing is I now that I've got four children, four sons, typically in agriculture, you get the boys come back. I don't want to get caught up in any sort of nepotism stuff, right? Especially with the business of, of our size, they, they've got to bring value back to the operation. Right. But I want to make sure I've done my part and that there's room for them and I don't have to turn them away. That that's, that to me is non-negotiable. They don't have to say yes, but I don't want to have to say no to them. Um, but, you know, as far as work-life balance goes, I mean, I'll, I'll share candidly, you know what, at, at my age at 31, I'm in a lot different of a spot than most 31 year old males are in agriculture. Um, in that I don't have any operational responsibility and I get to be a dad, you know, I'm here eight to five. And I go home after that. I'm home every night. I'm home on the weekends. And, I, and that's, that's deliberate. I love to work. If I didn't have kids, I'd be here a lot more, but I love my kids more. Right. And, and I like spending time with them. And then, you know, as far as like the relationship between, you know, Cody and dad and I, um, you know, getting away is important. I also share another thing, you know, that, that frankly, I'll, I'll be honest, 
might be uncomfortable to mention, but my mom retired in January and I, I'm actually, I'm very grateful for that because now I have a mom and not a coworker. You know what I mean? I mean, there's, there's, there's something there that's, that, that, that makes a difference, right? When there's separation from your day-to-day mundane stuff and when you can step away from that and be a dad and be a son and be a cousin separate from the crap that went on, you know, from eight to five that day. And it's, I think everyone has to deal with or, or dance with how you deal with it. Um, but I, I think we, you know, we, we do an all right job at it. Yeah. Michelle handles our books, all of our books. So for my businesses, Jordan's businesses, I'll hear her and Jordan just, you know, that <laughs> locking horns at times. And that's yeah. like, gosh, damn, I wish they didn't have to, you know, like you just yeah. said. I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm, that, you know, I'm, I'm glad my mom was gone because she was doing a poor job. Yeah. She was wonderful, but it's just that, that relationship part, you know, is I'm, I'm grateful that she was able to step away. Yeah. One of the things that we did as a company, it's been almost six, seven years ago that we actually instituted basically eight to five, five days a week for the entire entirety of the operation. Now, albeit there's, there's seasons that you have to just calving season, breeding season, planting season, harvest. I mean, there's things that are an exception to that, but by and large, people show up to work by eight and most of them are pretty much gone by five, five days a week. Now, that has really helped maintain people here because they all have families. Some of them maybe aren't married, but they still have their time. And we value that really, really highly. And so the work-life balance thing, and I think is so extremely important. Now, my dad's generation, you worked as long as it took to get the job done and then some. Um, it didn't matter if it was Sunday or 4th of July. I mean, you just did what had to be done. Well, we still do that but we do it more effectively and we allow time for people to be with their families. And I think that's really, really key in any successful operation. Well, and it's important to know too, that we don't tell them not to come to work. Right. I mean, we just, you know, we say, look, you, you, we've got responsibilities. We're going to talk about the week on a Monday through Friday basis. Yeah. We might have some combining to do on Saturday during the season, you know, carvest season or planning to do on Saturday but we've got employees that put in 80 hours a week too. And that's on their own regard, hundred percent. We give them the choice. Hey, if, if you want to work that hard, there's plenty of work to be done, but we're not going to expect that out of everybody. We don't expect it out of anyone for that matter. Right. Because I, I think it's, you know, like dad mentioned the older generation, like, like his father, my grandfather, people my age don't have that mentality. Absolutely do not have that mentality. Okay. Okay, and you know you can sit here and debate. The five of us could here could sit here and debate: is that good? Is that bad? The the fact of the matter it just is, right? And so now we're in an environment where it's hard to find labor. You kind of you, you just have to sit down and say, all right, well then this is what we're going to have to do to make sure we got people, and we did it. Well, that's probably why when I I mean I couldn't keep anybody there for a while. I mean a few years back, and Michelle and Jordan are like, yeah, people just aren't going to do what you did with your grandpa and your you know how they worked. I just told Jordan, I'm like, you got to handle these. You got to hire them. You got to handle them. I got to just stay the hell away from this deal because we're going to nobody. Here we are. So. It's different. It's definitely different. Definitely different. So I love hearing Jordan. That. Jordan, I'll take a stab at your going over to the parents' evening evening meal. Um, just a recommendation. It, this happened to me too all the time. It drove, got to the point where I didn't even want to go over there. Right. <laughs> and I just, I just said, finally, we, for my wife and my family's sake, we are not talking about business tonight. We're just not doing it. And we talked about everything else in the world, but we're not talking about business. We'll talk about business tomorrow morning if you want to. After, after we kind of laid some ground rules down, like now, even today, my dad has to ask me, is it okay if I ask you something about business while we're having a family meal? And then you can say yes or no, and it's okay. Yeah. And so you just, just lay down some ground rules and because otherwise it will get to the point where oh yeah, it's not fun. That's how it works right now, Cody. It, he'll, either he'll say something or I'll say, just mention something like, hey, did you see that from so-and-so? Hey, did you get that invoice or did you get that take shit? Then the next thing we're, we're in a <laughs> it's, Yeah, it's one question and it's four hours later. Uh, yeah. Four hours later, we're, still, we're off on something. 
said, no, I hear you. You can wreck a really nice bottle of wine, I tell you. I guess, for sure. So, well, is that about it, Joe? We're ready to wrap things up? Yeah, I think uh, that's about all I had. Awesome. But, yeah, I sure appreciate you guys getting on and lots of good insights. So, hey, where hey can we they... love your newsletter. Hey, where I can read it every day? Go? Where can folks go if they want to check out the hunting lodge and, and schedule books on next year or something? Like go to lazyjgrand.com. Lazyjgrand.com. All website right. for the lodge. And then, you know, if anyone has questions about any of the, the, the seed business, farming side, the livestock operation, leasing bulls, smart bulls, they can go to jorgensenfarms.com. Okay, cool. Heck yeah. That'd be Got great. a Facebook page too. Try to keep that updated. Yeah, when's the, uh, when's the next big bull sale? The third Monday in April. Easter Monday. Easter, Easter Monday. Monday. That's the big annual one where everyone comes in from all over the place. Yeah, that's the one. Huh? I got to get up there. They are 51st. Okay, wow. How many people attend that thing? Usually. A couple hundred. Yeah, wow. 200. Damn, nice. What's the, uh, I was going to ask you this too. I hate to keep taking it on. What's the virtual done to your guys' sales? Has that helped a lot or? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it really has. It's helped a ton. It just there's it it got our cattle exposed to to the world as opposed to just coming to South Dakota and seeing them. So yeah. and just like in our our cow sale we had here about a month ago, a third of the cattle um, sold online to guys that yeah. that never showed up, right? And right. you know, so there's that aspect. There's the exposure aspect, and then there's the the logistics on sale day are so much better. Sale day used to be a a nightmare. I mean, it was just, it was a lot of work sale weekend, frankly. I mean, processing animals, deal with them during the sale. Now that's all done beforehand. And frankly, our, our, our team kind of gets the day off uh, on, you know, when we, when we have sales. So that's, that's been a nice switch. Hey, our offer still stands. You move any operation down South here. We're interested. We're, we're trying, we're, Kevin, we're trying to bust into that. That I remember you telling me, market. and I got to tell you, we're we're not having as good a luck as we'd hoped. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I remember you telling me about it. So you know, I told Jordan we're always kind of looking for some ground, different ground for cattle, and I said, "Oh, you can always call them and hook up if we get something too big to chew on, and it'll run enough for you down this way, down south." So maybe it's just the timing too. Yeah, I talked to Greg Dowd the other day, and he he's bullish. He's bold up on the cattle industry longer term, but you know. I think it's going to be a tough road to hoe here for a while. It looks like maybe it'll shake uh, off. Right now it's inflation and high interest rates. Just oh, hard. they're painful. They're painful. Yeah. I feed costs, just everything. Just it's yeah. bare right now. Right. So yeah, I hear you guys. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you guys. Have a good week. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thanks yeah, for your thanks, family. Guys. See you guys. Thank you. Take care.